going to be choosing this BDSM podcast on issues surrounding concussion and para-athletes. My name is Dr. Liam West, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Richard Wheeler. Richard's a consultant physician in sport, exercise, and musculoskeletal medicine, working at Fortius Clinic in London. He's the lead doctor for West Ham United Football Club, has supported athletes in both summer and winter Olympic events, and has worked three Paralympic cycles with GB Para Football. His PhD through the Foo University in Amsterdam is on para sport concussion care. It's great to have you on board the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much, Liam, for having me. So how did you get involved in para football? Pretty random, really. Uh, when I was first starting out, um, uh, I went to my, um, got invited to my first conference at the Football Association. Uh, had a great time, learned a lot, met some great people and thought nothing more of it and about uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from someone at the Football Association uh, saying that they'd been let down by um, the team doctor for the England amputee football team who were just about to travel off to Turkey in the World Cup. Um, I was doing my MSc in sport and exercise medicine at UCL at the time, and I went and had a chat with the course organisers. I said, give me two minutes, five, two minutes to make a decision here. I need to get off the course because I just started an MSc. Um, uh, so I went and had a chat with my course organisers. I've got been offered the most amazing opportunity sounds incredible and they went uh, but you've only just started the course and i said well this is the whole idea of the course i mean i, I might actually learn something i can put something into practice anyway i went uh, i went to turkey um uh, i had the most incredible time i learned a lot and i absolutely fell head over heels in love with parasport when i was there um, and i've been trying to keep a ha my hand in ever since Perfect. And for those listening, he did actually finish that MSc. Um, so <laughs> that's the clinical side. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, research side. So you and a group of colleagues have investigated concussion experiences, specifically in blind male footballers. Can you explain to the listeners how you went about doing this? We used a different type of sort of research construct um, called um, a qualitative study. Uh, where in order to try and understand athletes' perceptions and experiences on uh, on concussion from from their context, um, we performed uh, semi-structured interviews um, with um, uh, with the athletes to explore their ideas um, and what they think and you know their behaviours. And it's, it's a different way of um, it's a different way of looking at research, where rather than quant, where you count bean count and things are numbers, the, the data are people's words and people's thoughts and their perceptions. Um, so the, 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 the interesting thing about, um, qualitative studies is you really get to the nub of perhaps why things don't work and you, you understand the quest, the research question in a bit more detail. Um, uh, and in the, the, the context of my study, I really wanted to try and try and find opportunities for the future by understanding blind football's perceptions on and experiences on concussion to see if we can actually maybe improve concussion care. It's really weird. You go, you go through life as a clinician, um, uh, and you listen to your athlete, uh, you listen to your athletes and your patients, you talk to them, you, you let them guide you on, on, on their, on, on their clinical care. And yet when it comes to research, we think we know everything. Perhaps some of the reasons why lots of things don't work in, in real life, um, uh, when we implement them, when we implement them in real life for clinical care or, or for injury prevention is because we haven't actually bothered to ask the athletes and listen to them. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do is 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 listen to them and um uh, and understand concussion from their from their world and their context um uh, it really was fascinating experience it's a bit like starting at the end of the process and we all talk about translation of results into the clinical domain well it's sort of finding out the clinical domain and working backwards to work out how you can change that 
Yeah, it is. There's a, I don't know. It's really funny. There's a certain arrogance about research. Um, I think that we don't really have in our clinical care where we sort of think we know everything and maybe just maybe the reason why things don't work that well in medical practice and is because we don't during that process actually stop and consider, um, uh, what the other important party in the, um, uh, in clinical care, what they're actually thinking. I think there's a little plug to the fact that the BGSM, um, partly with the patient voices as one of your co-authors uh, runs, as but also once the end user as part of the research from design all the way through. But look, before we start to say that uh, researchers are arrogant, because there's many of them listening, um, <laughs> so to ensure your findings are accessible to blind athletes, you've gone down a really novel route of recruiting the iconic Peter Drury to record it as an audio paper, which is just fantastic. I I've had the chance to listen to it prior to recording this podcast. It's surreal to hear someone who is essentially synonymous with elite football in the UK contribute to sports medicine research. So I commend you and your team for getting that across the line. Give the listener a sneak peek into this recording. We're going to play a few snippets that I'd love you to expand upon, if that's okay. So let's get to the first one. Blind footballers were not sure about the number of concussions they had sustained. They lacked an understanding of what to experience when concussed. So with this, the course makes quantifying, uh, bean counting it to use your term, the, uh, the problem of concussion in this cohort pretty hard, especially when often there's underfunding in the Paralympic uh, medical scene. So there's a lack of appropriately trained medical staff to prospectively diagnose these concussions and log them. Do you have any insights as to how often these athletes might be getting concussed? The honest answer is, is, is probably no. Organised para-sport has been around for, over, I think it's about 112 years now. There have been a lot of studies that are done um, and very few until recently concussions have been recorded in any of the injury surveillance and epidemiological studies. We don't really know why that is, but times are changing. And I don't know whether or not I'm allowed to say this or not, but I think in the um, in the latest uh, epidemiological study from the most recent Paralympics, um, concussions have been recorded for the first time. So there is a there, there, there is a change that is happening. I think in 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 para sport there are unique challenges to uh, making a diagnosis, which is part of the reason why I started off this PhD is because my own clinical care, um, I didn't feel was adequate. And I didn't think that was my fault at the time. But whenever I was looking after an athlete with a concussion or suspected concussion, uh, I felt a bit clueless and unsupported um, about how to apply what we, what we know from mainstream and mainstream guidance and consensus uh, guidelines um, to the para-athlete. Um, and that's sort of really where my journey began. Um, and the honest answer is no. I don't think we really know how common it is because if we're struggling to diagnose these um, concussions, then they're not going to be counted within the epidemiological studies. Um, but I think times are changing. So who knows? Watch this space. Watch this space indeed. So back over to Peter. Footballers perceive concussions for sighted and blind people to be different experiences, suggesting that concussion assessments are designed for people with sight. Can you expand on these differences for the listener? Spatial awareness is being aware of your surroundings and your position relative to them. So if you um, can't see and you're playing football and um, you're listening to um, the noise um, that, that the ball makes with, with the bearings inside it, then you um, then you really need your spatial awareness. Otherwise, you're going to collide with other people um, who are moving continually. Um, so it's absolutely fundamental and, and concentration is vital for that. I can think back to uh, that there was 
one of the athletes that that thought they had been concussed recounted a story where, which uh, it's funny, but it's not funny, and also understandable. Where they, they had said that during their own assessment by a doctor, um, they'd been asked whether or not they had any double vision, and this is someone that really can't see anything at all. And they thought it was sort of funny um, at, at the time that they'd been asked that. And some of the athletes felt that the assessments that we've got have a visual bias to them, be it how can you see, can you see this, do you have double vision, Is what's your vision like, um, you know, some of the questions um, uh, have a visual, you, you know, you need, you need some spatial awareness if you're doing a balance test. Um, uh, people with um, people with visual impairment are, are often found to have um, uh, impaired balance and they, they were, there were certain aspects that they felt were made it much much harder for people assessing them and much harder for them to represent themselves and so they felt that they generally um, amongst the group that were interviewed they felt that there were there were there were biases within there that were of a visual nature we don't know how many are getting concussed and we're not very good at being able to assess it we're not really starting on very firm ground here we'll dip back in with the, uh, the quote from peter Two footballers mentioned that communication between footballers is important to avoid collisions, recalling the example of collisions experienced when unable to hear in windy conditions. So this is slightly unique, isn't it, really, for vision-impaired athletes where the environment's so crucial. Is there a role for controlling environment conditions, such as venue location, timing, competition, maybe postponing if it's noising additions to reduce concussions in blind football? And should we be empowering our listeners that work or will work in this arena to consider these methods of preventing concussion? It's a very unusual sport in that it, you need to play it in silence um, because communication um, and the athletes being able to hear each other is, is critical to their spatial um, awareness so that they don't collide with each other. And um, it's, it's a safety issue. Um, I can remember back to the London 2012 Paralympics when um, uh, the, the, the hockey pitches on which the blind football competition were played were right next to um, a massive music boom box. Um, that one of the first things that they had to do was make sure it was switched off during matches because it, it you know, it's got a safety risk. Um, it's very interesting. And um, wind and rain, wind is worse. According to our study, um, the wind is worse um, than, than than rain in terms of hearing communication, and it makes it it, it adds danger um, uh, to the game. You can't control the weather, and there are there are issues um, there are issues around safety and being able to hear um, that that other sports don't really have. It's fascinating to start to see the complexities of working within a para setting um, and managing concussion properly. To keep with the theme of management, we'll move on to the next quote from the papers. Most participants mentioned education as important in concussion management, and education for players, coaches and medical staff were separately mentioned. What would be the take-home education for our listener, and what are the other elements of improving concussion management for these athletes? One of the first questions on the um, on the SCAT five uh, in the early stages, uh, you know, how many concussions have you had before? Um, and when I started asking these questions at the beginning of the um, uh, at the beginning of this um, each interview, none of the athletes were sure how many concussions they had had, which I found very striking um, at the time. When you start to understand their perceptions and through the course of interviewing the athletes and the, analyzing the data. You sort of you start to understand why, and you you think about their perceptions and their experiences, and you really you really do start to understand why they all felt that they would benefit greatly from understanding more about concussion, having more information available to them. They actually thought that their coaches um, and medical staff may benefit too, and it makes a lot of sense. 
if you're not really certain what to experience, if you're not certain, if you don't necessarily trust that the assessment tools were designed for you, that you benefit greatly from understanding what, what words to use to explain what you're experiencing or what you're feeling if you've never experienced it before um, and how you might know and suspect that you have a concussion. I think there's, um, there's a belief that when you read a lot of papers um, uh, in, in, if I can call it concussion land, there's this belief that a lot of athletes um, sort of knowingly hide symptoms so they can carry on playing. Um, and some athletes um, do have that drive. And some of the athletes in our study also had that, um, you know, that, that desire to carry on playing. They're, they're competitive. They're, they're trying to win. They're, they're elite in a sport it's fundamental and yet equally there was an innocence um if you can call it that as well where where, where they just weren't sure they didn't know and and if you don't know don't know what to say you don't know what the implications are uh, and so the athletes perceptions really drive their behaviors and their reporting and if you don't know no one's going to know whether or not you've got a concussion if the athlete doesn't know then the clinician isn't really going to know and i think even though that's unique within this context I don't think it's unique. I think there's overlap in the whole of, well, for every athlete, mainstream, um, whatever, whatever format of para sport they're playing. One part of the paper that I was interested in learning was about the VOI rule. I was wondering if you could just explain that to our listeners and why it's important in a concussion context. The VOI rule is a rule that means that when, when an athlete is about to tackle um, another athlete, that they um, have to say the word VOI. Um, out loud so it can be heard and the reason um the reason for doing that is to help improve the spatial awareness so that an athlete can brace themselves with potential collision and tackle the athletes have different perceptions around that rule they feel that it's important for the game for safety but it also helps improve the flow of the game because it means that you're likely to have less fouls um, and it means there'd be less stop starting and they feel that's very important for the for the game itself from a safety point of view, it's fundamental, but it's um, they, they felt that referees interpret the rule slightly differently. Some referees and athletes with that are lesser experienced at football may not implement the rule the same as people who are more experienced. Um, so they might not call a foul. So if you don't if you don't say "voy" when you're going in for a tackle, then then technically it should be a foul, and they feel that. The athletes, some of them perceive that players and referees that are less experienced don't implement the rule or use the rule appropriately. And they, they feel that there might be a risk there and it also affects the flow of the game. So they felt it was quite important. Yeah, so rule changes can really pot potentially help prevent concussions there. Look, I think we've got time for one last quote to try and expand on, to try and entice the listener to get across and read the paper or listen to the paper, which is a great new step for them. So... Blind footballers perceived concussion symptom severity and mechanism of injury to be of greater relevance to them than whether they sustained a concussion. This statement might surprise the listener given the recent global spotlight on concussions. How did you go about discussing this finding in your paper? I thought it was really fascinating. I, I don't think there are too many, there were, I couldn't find any qualitative studies um, relating to concussion before, so I don't really have a reference point. Most people, um, most clinicians, I think, realise that an injury to the brain is an extremely serious condition, and we sort of, concussion is fairly binary um, as far as we're concerned. It's like you have concussion or you don't have concussion, and I think that's important. But the athletes, they do consider there to be a spectrum, a range, um, like you might have a mild concussion, or a severe concussion, and that was um, that was something that seemed to come across within the data of this study, and that affects their perceptions and their behaviours. So um, they they seem to be more interested in 
how severe their symptoms were and how long they lasted rather than whether or not they had a concussion, which means that you've got the athlete on one side who thinks that way and you've got the clinician on the other side who goes, oh gosh, all, all concussions are absolutely awful. Never the twain, never the twain shall meet. It's like the, they're, they're on different pages. And I think that unless we really understand how athletes are thinking and what their perceptions are, um, I think we're going to struggle as clinicians to implement, to, well, to diagnose and implement management plans. Um, so I think that's really, really fascinating, really insightful, made a lot of sense. And I haven't read it before. Before I let you go, Richard, for those of uh, us that are currently working in, in, in Parasport, where should we head to try and get some information of how we can improve our care for these athletes? So in, um, in BGSM, um, we published last year a position statement with the Concussion in Parasport group where we adapted the Concussion in Sport consensus guidelines um, and looked in detail at SCAP5 for every para impairment group. You can find it on the, uh, on the BGSM website. It's wonderful. It's open access. Uh, and if I can direct listeners, readers to the, the supplemental files, uh, we've got the adapted SCAP5 for on-field and off field for every single para impairment group to use as a guide next to the SCAT 5 um, when making a clinical assessment um, uh, for an athlete um, with uh, for a para athlete with a suspected concussion. And they're also in great detail. We've gone through and looked at slightly adapted guidance on management and return to play um, for these athletes too. So I encourage everyone to use use that as a guide. Fantastic. And thank you for your contribution amongst your co-authors with that. Thank you, Richard, for sharing your time with our BGSM listeners today. Thank you very much, Liam. Thank you. Thanks again to you, the listener, for choosing this BGSM podcast on an important area of sports medicine. Hopefully this little snippet has enticed you to read, or as I mentioned, listen to the full paper. And the links for both of these can be found in the podcast below. Until then, I hope you get to have a physically active day.